Jill Sander once said, I am convinced that there can be luxury in simplicity. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about micro RPGs. So, John, what are micro RPGs? A micro RPG is a compact game that can fit the entirety of the rules in just a few pages. They are typically cheap, and by definition, they are always rules light. So, today we have a nice long list of these quick, small, little games that you might want to try out. So, let's just get started. The first one we have is probably the most famous micro-RPG, Fiasco. Now, Fiasco comes in an entire book, but the actual rules for the game are fairly simple and straightforward. It's a fairly rules-like game with a book that then gives you a lot of explanation of what you can actually do with these rules. You want to break it down real quick? Fiasco is often called the player-owned Coen Brothers movie game. In it, you have a giant pool of dice and you roll them. Then each person goes around the table and starts assigning these little attributes to who they are and who their relationships are to the other people at the table. And then after that, you start narrating a scene. Now, at the end of that, you can either have the other people tell you how the scene ends for you, or you can narrate the end of the scene yourself. Now, if you do that, the other people determine whether it goes good or bad for you. If everyone else narrates the end of the scene for you, you determine if it goes good or bad for you. And that's the basics of the game. That is the whole game, actually, as far as the game is concerned. But what you do with this is what makes it interesting. You have to choose a setting, you have to choose a scenario, and you have to decide what the characters involved in this scenario scenario are and what their relations are to each other. What makes the game interesting is the opportunity to play out a fiasco, a a crazy scenario where all sorts of zany antics ensue. And zany antics I'm using very loosely because mostly we mean dark, horrifying events that result in trauma for all involved, like a Coen Brothers film. At the very end of the game, you take all the dice that are in front of you and you pick them up and you roll them. And the difference between the white dice and the black dice, you check on the chart and it determines the end of the game for you. A lot of times it's, oh, your character dies, or no, 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 it's even worse than that. Death is too good for this person. But every now and then, they might get off with just a few small nicks, few little problems here and there. And that's really in the theme of this game. Bad things happen to bad people. Yeah, it could end up being a learning experience for these bad people, but probably won't. Probably terrible things are going to happen. But that's the point of Fiasco, is getting to play out this crazy, terrible scenario. The next game that we wanted to talk about is actually a suite of games, the Powered by the Apocalypse games, based on the Apocalypse engine as introduced in Apocalypse World. Now, the Powered by Apocalypse games are fairly simple little role-playing games where you just roll 2d6, add a relevant stat, usually different by game, and then you determine if you succeed or not. Now, there are degrees of success which are pretty cool. Sometimes you succeed only a little bit. The DM might go, well, you succeed, but there's this problem involved. Or you might succeed completely, or you might have a really amazing success. But what matters is that there are degrees of success and that every role 
is goal-oriented. You're always looking at what you're trying to achieve by the role rather than just saying, I'm trying to do this, what is my role? For example, in Apocalypse World, you might be rolling to cause physical harm to somebody and then based on how successful you are, you choose from a list of effects. You cause great harm. You cause harm without causing harm to yourself. Uh, you cause harm that's difficult to mitigate. You cause harm that cripples your enemy. And if you succeed very well, you might choose three or four of these, you know, that sort of thing. But the point is that the engine allows for these very narrative roles to take place where you are talking about what happens and what happens in terms of choosing between several different possibilities or more possibilities on a greater success. And it lends itself to a very narrative play style that allows for us to be serious about what is occurring and understand the meaning of what's occurring without pinning it to numbers per se. Now, the thing I like about the Powered by Apocalypse games is most of them have classes that the players choose from, and the classes are all but completely built characters for you. You just go down the list and check a few different marks, and your character's done. You can get playing in just a few minutes, whereas in more traditional RPGs, RPGs, it can take hours to create a character. Yeah, as an example, there's, in many RPGs, you have to distribute points between attributes. The Apocalypse Engine does not typically do that. For most characters, you have several different arrays of stats that you can choose from, and it's just a simple choice which one of these arrays appeals to you. Honestly, if you're playing it exactly as written, and it points out that you don't have to do this, but if you're playing it exactly as written, there's even a list of names for the character that would be appropriate to the theme of the character. If you're a werewolf, you need to have a good werewolfy name, like Bruiser or Jacob or something like that. Now, the other thing about the Powered by Apocalypse engine that I really enjoy is during character creation at the very beginning of the game, you take strings on other players. Well, strings or history or whatever this particular iteration of the Apocalypse engine calls it, but these are connections you have to other characters, and they're usually described initially in narrative terms, but then, of course, you have the string with the other character. Like, uh, some of them might be something creepy, like, who have you watched sleeping, or... Who knows a dark secret about you? That sort of thing. Or maybe you know everybody, so you get to take a string with everybody by n the nature of your character. Or you're a loner, so you get to cut a string on somebody. And this gives you a specific narrative connection to the other characters that also carries some game weight. Honestly, the rules themselves, the simple resolution mechanics of the Apocalypse Engine, again, can be explained on one page, and the rest of the book is just filling in the flavor and explaining the setting of this particular Apocalypse Engine game. Uh, we, we know about Monster Hearts and Apocalypse World, and then there's also, what, Dungeon World and... Uh, oh, let's see. There's Dungeon World, there's The Warren, there's The Sprawl, Spirit of 77, Monster of the Week, Masks mashed, which is where you explore life as a person in a mobile army surgical hospital during the Korean War. You can't imagine what inspired that, you know? <laughs> the one that actually really caught my eye was I'm probably going to butcher the name of this Epilion? It's a game where you play as dragons in a dragon-centric world. That actually sounds really interesting. I remember that there was a Council of Worms for D&D. That was a dragon-centered world for D&Ds, and it was an interesting setting that has yet to be 
ported into any version other than second edition to my knowledge but still it's it's a cool idea and it's something that isn't frequently done the next game though that we wanted to talk about was fudge which is a older rpg and i wanted to bring it up personally because it's one of the early examples of a micro rpg fudge was a very simple resolution system that allowed for the rolling of dice with just pluses and minuses on them. They're now used in the Fate system, which is an upgraded version of Fudge with a lot more rules attached to it, but the original Fudge system basically just explained this resolution mechanic to you, like that you roll these dice and the pluses increase it, the minuses reduce it, you add your attributes and penalties to that, and then you're trying to shoot for a target number. That was basically all it told you, like that it just said this is the resolution mechanic. Then, like a lot of these micro RPG books, it gave a lot of examples of how you can use that resolution mechanic to play games in different settings under different circumstances. It gave some examples of fantasy settings, science fiction settings, all kinds of settings that you could play using this simple fudge engine. It was kind of meant to be a much more rules-light rival to GURPS, which at the time was growing in popularity. And this was the early internet age in the so this was when people really started to share material on the internet and fudge grew mostly by that sort of organic digital word of mouth which is what made it very interesting to me and it can be played with a variety of different objects uh, you might use counters to track power which, of course, you'd have to define how those powers work and such, but it gave you a lot of flexibility to make your own game within the confines of this fairly simple resolution mechanic. The thing I like about Fudge is it's not tied to any other game. At the time, most people, when they roleplayed, played D&D offshoot-like games. Then they had other generic systems, as you said, like GURPS, but Fudge was a better generic system, in my opinion, than GURPS. GURPS, you had all of these rules that you had to screw together, bolt together, and have this massive rules catalog. Whereas Fudge, most of the time you could sit down with your players and go, okay, slide one page forward, here are the rules. They both had that charming sort of, we didn't really finish the game, so now it's up to you, feel to it. But GURPS was largely about taking a huge morass of all of these random rules and tying them together how you wanted. Whereas Fudge was about starting with no rules and then making something from that. And it was a really neat concept for the time, really groundbreaking. And a lot of games kind of owe their spiritual heritage to Fudge. Now, the thing I like about Fudge the most is that while it is good for one-offs and two-off games, you can run full campaigns with it, and it doesn't get bogged down. Like a lot of games, when you start leveling up, you start adding more and more and more rules to your character. But with Fudge, no, you get more powerful, but the game doesn't slow down. It doesn't become substantially more complex. You just have more options and more power to do the options you already had, which is something that's a lot more manageable for players who might not want to delve too deeply into rules. The next game that we have is a little different than the last few. The last few are more generic ones. This game is very specific. We're going to be talking about Dread. In Dread, you're playing in a horror game. All of the players are going through some sort of horrible thing, and their characters are just this list of questions. Hey, what, what did you bury out on the highway in the desert? Hey, everyone else in your family is missing an eye. Why aren't you? Oh my goodness, 
What happened to your girlfriend last week? And all these questions define your character. And they all kind of are meant to hint toward an ominous setting that gives us a great view into what we expect from this game. And it gives the player some opportunity to inform on the kind of game they want to play. And it's really, this is one that's really very firmly meant to be a one-off. Can't really play a campaign of dread at all because of how the resolution mechanic works. All of the conflict is resolved through the use of a Jenga tower. If you have to do anything, if there's any stress put on your character, you have to remove a block from this Jenga tower and place it on the top. Now, everyone who's played Jenga knows that, well, the point of that game is to knock the tower over, well, to not knock the tower over, but as it goes on and on, eventually it will get knocked over. It is inevitable. The tower will be knocked over. Now, every time you do something stressful or dangerous in Dread, you are moving that counter forward, and it becomes more and more likely that you're going to be the one who destroys this Jenga tower. And when the Jenga tower falls, your character dies. There is no, oh, my character might be able to survive. No, your character dies. Now, if you want to take a little bit more narrative control of how your character dies, you can look at the story and go, all right, my character is going to die under my rules, and you can knock the tower over right then. But once again, your character is going to die. And this really lends a sense of stress to a horror game. You, mi- you might even say that it causes dread, <laughs> as the name would suggest. Now, it's really interesting to add this stressful element of, oh my goodness, I have to be very careful with removing these blocks from this Jenga tower. It adds, it, it adds tension to a game that benefits from having a lot of tension. I mean, it's really the point of a horror game is to experience this sense of impending doom and this dread. And the Jenga Tower mechanic actually does a fantastic job of doing that because it puts us in a stressful situation. You have that that cortisol response in your brain that makes you nervous and, and gives you like that that unpleasant tingling sensation as you pull one of the blocks out of the tower and push it up to the top, wondering if this is going to be the moment that you finally mess up and the whole thing comes tumbling down. It's a really cool experience and a really cool idea for a horror game. But once again, it is a one-off because, I mean, you're going to die. Somebody's going to die. It's going to end. And that's the inevitability of Dread. Now, a quick little aside here. Our music producer, Timmy Skittles, that isn't his real name. He, He actually has a real name that isn't Timmy Skittles, but he got the name Timmy Skittles by playing in a game of Dread that I ran one Halloween. His character was one of the only ones to completely survive. And it's just a fun little thing, and I'm glad that it has stuck with him. The next game that we have on our list is Microscope. Now, Microscope is weird. Most RPGs you play in a very linear fashion. You start at the beginning of the story and you move forward, adding on, figuring out the twists and turns. Microscope is different in the fact that you're just developing a timeline. You can go back into the past or go into the future to play out these individual scenes. Microscope is also interesting in that it's an RPG where you don't roleplay as any one particular character necessarily, and you'd spend most of the time 
probably not actually role-playing. In Microscope, you are building a timeline for a world or an event or something like that, and it goes from a point A to a point B, for instance, from the creation of the world to the heat death of the world if you want to go really big, or from the founding of a nation to the inevitable demise of that nation. You define certain rules, certain things that have to be part of the story, and certain things that cannot be part of the story. For example, in a fantasy world, you might say, well, dragons are part of the story. Dragons are an ingredient we want to include. But resurrection magic is off limits. Raising the dead is impossible. So that would be some of the definitions that you would use in your microscope game. Then you define items on the timeline, and when it's necessary, you might roleplay a scene that occurs in this timeline, each taking the part of different characters in that scene. Now, I played a game of Microscope a while back, wherein we were playing a group of uh, magistrates that were escaping from this city being besieged, and things were going horribly. Well, then the uh, scene after that that we played actually went before then to the breaching of the walls of this city. And then we went somewhere in between where all of the peasants are running away from this impending doom. And the great part about this game is the complete non-linear aspect to it. It's where everyone gets a chance to be the DM and the storyteller, and everyone gets a chance to be a player. The next game on our list is a really interesting one that I've wanted to try for a while and just haven't gotten a chance to get a group together for. It's called Everyone is John. In Everyone is John, um, you are all the voices in the head of a dramatically and profoundly disturbed individual. John is a homeless man and these voices drive him to different things. Each voice has a goal and those goals can be something as grandiose as becoming the leader of the world to as mundane as getting an ice cream. Now, John is not a skilled individual and is profoundly disturbed. Therefore, anytime when John tries to do something that there is any chance of failure for, they have to make rolls to see if John can succeed at that. Meanwhile, all of the voices are vying for control of John with their differing agendas. Uh, It's an interesting game because everybody is the same character, and in a sense, all of you have certain goals that align. I mean, if John dies, everybody loses, obviously. But as long as John is still alive, everybody has a vested interest in driving John to accomplish whatever their specific goal is. So let me get this straight. You want to play a game where everyone is John? Yeah, everyone is John. That seems a little... Narcissistic, absolutely. Yeah. But it's a really interesting concept because everybody is playing as the same character with completely different goals and agendas, and it lends itself to a very specific style of play. I've, I've watched Let's Plays of Everybody is John, and I've read game reports from games of Everyone is John, and it actually t- turns to be a very interesting experience with some people taking more control of John than others, some people biding their time for the right opportunity to jump in and take control, and some people just kind of riding it out and seeing where things go until they need to poke it in just the right direction to try to achieve their specific goals. It ends up being a really interesting experience. 
So let's see. The next one that we have here is... Okay, I just have a picture drawn of a bear in a hat. Yeah, yep, that's that's Honey Heist. Uh, it's actually a single-page RPG. It's fairly easy to find online, and we will, of course, provide a link to it. Honey Heist is a game by Grant H., uh, made in 2017. The goal of it is you're all these bears, right? Um, and your goal is to perform the greatest heist the world has ever seen at HoneyCon 2016. This requ- this requires you to come up with a complex Ocean's Eleven style plan for achieving this goal. Character creation is really simple. You roll four dice, uh, three six-siders and one eight-sider. The three six-siders are used to determine your descriptor, which is going to be something like rookie, washed up, retired, unhinged, slick, or incompetent. The type of bear you are, which also gives you a special skill. Grizzly bears, for example, are terrifying. Pandas can eat anything that's bamboo And yes, I know pandas are kind of not really bears, whatever. I'm not getting into that. And honey badgers, which have incredible courage. And then the role you play in the heist, being are you the muscle, the brains, the driver, the hacker, the thief, or the face? And finally... No, hold on, hold on. Wait a second. The D8 determines what hat you wear? Yes, the hat! Absolutely. You might need a trilby or a cowboy hat or a fez or a crown. This is very important to characterization. Now, of course, the goal is that you uh, do need to accomplish this without losing control of the fact that you are balanced, running a precarious balance between being a bear and a criminal. If you're too much of a criminal, you can lose the aspect of being a bear and therefore no longer want the honey, which makes the heist irrelevant. But if you become too much of a bear, you lose your ability to be a proper criminal and therefore are incapable of completing the heist. I like the little bit that they have here. The end. If your criminal stat ever reaches six, you're lured into a life of crime and betray the party. If your bear stat ever reaches six, you flip out bear style and lose it. Presumably to be picked up by animal control in half an hour or so. Exactly. You have to run a precarious balance. And also, you roll randomly to determine where HoneyCon is held. It could be in a creepy uh, convention center, or a beautiful fishing village, or a lavish wilderness retreat. All of these are, are options, and it just makes for a really weird, silly experience. That actually seems like a lot of fun for a great little one-off. Unfortunately, I don't know if I'd want to play a second game of Honey Heist. I think it's a one-time experience. It's something that you just have to do the one time because it's such a bizarre and beautiful game in that sense. It's a great example of how you can creatively take something crazy, make it even crazier, pump the crazy up to 20, and then make it something that you still want to do. So all the games we've been talking about have been getting so smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. I believe the smallest ones that we have here are the 200-word RPG Challenge. Yeah, there's an annual 200-word RPG Challenge. Again, we're going to put a link to this on our blog, but it's a challenge where you submit an RPG in 200 words or less, and... It has to be a complete playable game in that form. There are a lot of interesting examples, and we don't really have time to go through even the most interesting ones, but I see that you handpicked one that you thought was a really cool idea. Uh, time Travel thought, correct? Yeah, Time Travel thought. In this game, you have a paper towel, and you write down your superpowers on it. Now, you you and your friends are superheroes fighting against a supervillain who is traveling back in time and trying to erase you from existence. After you have all of your 
uh, all of your powers written in Sharpie on this paper towel, you put an ice cube on the paper towel. Now, as the ice cube melts, it's going to slowly have a ring of water expand out and out and out. And any time that the ring of water gets to one of your powers, it erases that power. It erases that ability completely. If all of your powers are erased, you are erased from existence. That sounds like a kind of a dread mechanic, you know? It gives you this sense of impending doom and this understanding that as time goes on, you are less and less likely to be able to succeed at your task. Of course, since you're superheroes, it does have to have that aspect of hope that Dread lacks. In Dread, you are doomed, obviously, but in Time Travel Thaw, I presume that the goal is to actually, you know, successfully thwart this villain in undoing you from the timeline. Exactly. Now, the 200-word RPG challenge ranges all the way from super silly to super serious. I mean, we, as John said, we don't have time to go over all of them, but I'll just list the names of some of these just to give you an idea. On the super serious end, there's Self-Sacrifice. Rum Runners, One Last Night Together, On the Eve of the Wedding. But on the silly side, we have ones that are called Boys to Men in Black and Same Bat Time, Same Bat Mitzvah. <laughs> so, and, and all of these, once again, are written in 200 words. So let's see. Let, let's move on. Okay, once again, I just have a picture here. It's a die with a pair of shoes next to it. What is this, John? Ah. Roll for Shoes. Roll for Shoes is a very simple RPG that uses a very simple mechanic. Anytime you do anything, you have to roll for it. And your first skill is do anything, which you have one point in, which means you roll one die. Now, when you succeed at a task, if you roll all sixes, you have to take another skill related to whatever you do. And that skill is at a higher level than your previous skill. So, say you're trying to put on your shoes. You roll for Shoes. Roll the d6. If you roll a 1, you failed. If you roll a 6, though, you not only succeed at putting on your shoes, but now you have uh, some ability related to shoes at two levels. Now, I know what you're thinking. What abilities could be related to shoes? Anything shoe-related. You could run. Maybe you're a good climber. Maybe you are just adept at making and wearing shoes. It's up to you to decide what your skills are. Did you eat a piece of cake? Roll a d6. You rolled a 6? Sweet. You have powerful teeth. You have a powerful bite attack now. Whatever. It just builds into all of these things. And as you roll, you get less and less chances of getting an upgraded skill with 3D6 kind of being a pretty close cutoff point. I mean, at that point, you really only have a, what is it, 1 in... Uh, 216, I think, chance? Yeah, about 1 in 216 chance of getting that coveted 4-level skill. And you're never going to see a 5-level skill, statistically speaking. But it does lend itself to an interesting use of a growth dynamic. It's a very simple RPG. It's obviously silly and lighthearted, but it could be a little bit of fun, and it's an interesting idea and shows the sort of creativity that we see for these sort of things. So we don't have a lot of time left. Let's speed through these last ones. We have Cram. What is Cram? Cram is sort of a successor to Fudge. It's another one-page RPG. It stands for Compressed Role-Playing Adventure Manual. It's a free game, and it's just a very simple, straightforward system. Uh, you use 3x5 index cards to record your character info. You'll need six-sided dice, of course, because most games like this do end up using six-sided dice. And it has basic rules for how to do ability checks, how to do combat, and a set of suggested skills that the games should use. Use, like vocational skills, subterfuge, science, 
psionics, whatever you want to put into your particular game. All of these are options, and the entire idea is that you just are shooting for a target number. So it's a fairly simple system, and it's meant to be kind of almost a successor to Fudge and other simple resolution mechanic-based games, where all you're given is a resolution mechanic and then told, now do whatever you want with it, which is, again, a very interesting idea in RPGs and a very good way of allowing people to customize systems to their specifications. The last game that we have here we're only going to briefly mention just to really get across the point of why we're talking about micro RPGs. So the last game we're talking about is KPFS. I really should take better notes. What is that? (laughs) Killing Puppies for Satan. Yes, Killing Puppies for Satan. I love that expression. I wish, I almost wish this was a vlog instead of a podcast because that was incredible. In Killing Puppies for Satan, you are evil cultists who get their power by uh, appeasing Satan. Now, the demons have a really strong union, so you can't please Satan by tempting people to sin because the demons hate when people lord in on their action. What can you do? Well, you can't really torture people because usually when you torture people, that helps them find faith and find a reason to carry on. No, instead, you kill their puppies because it ruins their day, it ruins their life, and it makes them go, God, why? Rather than, God, help me! So the idea is that you kill puppies for Satan, and it's a game that's very simple. Yeah, the resolution mechanic is super simple, and it has a number of different types of characters. Obviously, there's the cultists who all kill puppies for Satan, but there's also wizards who turn people into toads. There's uh, various different types of characters, and one of your stats is how many puppies you've killed, and therefore how many people hate you. The more powerful you get, the more people hate you personally, and the more problems this causes for you. Now, the reason I want to bring this up is because while it could be fun to play a psychotic sociopath bent on killing puppies to gain power from Satan once, it's really not the sort of thing you devote a campaign to. Now, that's a kind of a generalization. I know that there were people in Vampire the Masquerade, for example, who thought it was fun to play as the Sabbat, who are the psychotic, evil, super vampires who want to enslave and destroy humanity. So I guess there is an appeal to that sort of thing to some people. But for me, this is the sort of thing that you really want to throw down as a one-off. You want to be silly. You want to be over the top and ridiculous. But you don't really want to do it on a weekly basis. It's not something you make a full campaign out of, which is kind of the point of micro RPGs is being able to play something interesting and different without feeling the need to commit a whole campaign to it. That's really the whole reason we wanted to talk about these. Sometimes you need to take a break from your long-running campaign. Sometimes you're in between campaigns. Sometimes you just want to play a one-off. Maybe a player isn't there and you still want to roleplay. That is the perfect time for a micro RPG. And if you're a role player and you've never checked out any micro RPGs, they're quick to learn, very inexpensive if you have to buy them, and they're usually a really fun time. So what do we have up next on the docket, John? Cohorts? Yes, cohorts. Friendly NPCs. Uh, We're going to talk about how to use them in your games, how to allow the characters to have... Uh, the player characters to have the freedom to have some narrative control over these characters without feeling like they're additional PCs, and how to balance them and make sure that they're not destroying the fun in your game. 
It's a really interesting topic because cohorts, torchbearers, and the like have really kind of fallen out of fashion in RPGs lately. And I think that they really do have a place in the games. Well, they are some of the Ur characters from RPGs. Way back in the day, that was more or less how people rounded out their groups in RPGs, especially in old school D&D where death was arbitrary and terrible things happened constantly. It really helped to have more characters involved in the scenario, but that is the topic for next time. All right, so this has been Save versus Rant. Thank you very much for listening. It is my ambition to say in ten sentences what others say in a whole book. Friedrich Nietzsche. Save versus Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.